Welcome to Open Deeply Season 3, as we burn down shame and reclaim our power. The truths society pushes into the shadows are the very things that connect us. Truths around sexual authenticity, the wisdom of plant medicine, the pursuit of equity, and beyond. To open deeply, as Jack Cornfield says, takes tremendous courage, a warrior spirit. This unconventional path takes just that. So join us. Together, we have the courage to open deeply. Here are your hosts, Sunny Megatron and Kate Laurie. Welcome to Open Deeply. I'm Kate Laurie, and my co-host is sex educator, Sunny Megatron. The term Open Deeply has many implications. As a trauma therapist, I've noticed that the key thing that disconnects us from our body, our partners, and the grander connection to the whole is unresolved trauma. It makes us constricted somatically like a flower that's tight in the bud. So as much as we will talk about subjects that allow us to open deeply, sexually, mentally, spiritually, emotionally, somatically, we will also talk about the forces that block us. And today, the subject is the grooming of adults in the kink scene. This is a repost from Sunny's other podcast, American Sex. I heard this episode and thought I need to make sure that Open Deeply listeners hear this as well. And it will set the stage for our next episode with Rachel Krantz, the author of Open, an uncensored memoir of love, liberation, and non-monogamy, in which we will broaden the discussion to coercion that is not just within kink, but also non-monogamy as well. And it's a side note that this could happen in any system or any community. But with that said, moving on to the bio, y'all know Sunny. So I'll keep this intro short. Sunny Megatron is an award-winning sex educator, media personality, and soon-to-be author. So excited about that. She's a host and executive producer of the Showtime original television series, Sex with Sunny Megatron. Plus, she co-hosts American Sex Podcasts and, of course, this one, Open Deeply. She was voted Expiz Sexpert of the Year in 2021, and I'm excited to introduce you to this episode. But before we get started, I need to remind you that Open Deeply Podcast is not therapy nor a replacement for therapy. If you catch yourself becoming emotionally overwhelmed by this episode's content, please get support. Call or text a friend, a therapist, or a nationwide crisis line like 988. All right. With that being said, here's Sunny. So this is one of those episodes that's going to be kind of like a conversation, like my BDSM freestyle episodes. But this one is about one particular subject, uh, grooming. And why grooming? Well, if you have been following me for a while, you may notice I'm a little seat of my pants, or maybe you haven't noticed. Maybe I play it off really well, but I am. I don't uh, plan way in advance, like, oh, yeah, in April, I'm going to talk about this or in, you know, October, I'm going to like, for instance, people who plan their social media posts months out, I don't understand, I cannot 
get into the Halloween headspace and like write a social media post about Halloween if it's like August 22nd, right? Uh, and I'm kind of the same way with a lot of these these freestyle episodes and really a, a lot of stuff in my life. I'm just seeing in my pants. That's the way it works. But, you know, I also, hmm, I don't know if things happen for a reason, but I do notice there's like some synergy sometimes, or maybe things just happen and coincidences happen and we make reasons out of them later. But what has happened to me over the last few months is the subject of grooming within the context of BDSM has come up repeatedly, 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 like it's banging me over the head with a brick. And then I realized like, whoa, I just had this like, I need to talk about grooming. <laughs> so here we are. Well, why? Grooming happens a lot in a lot of different contexts. But usually, as adults, we're like, well, I, I'm an adult. I'm not going to be susceptible to grooming. Isn't that the thing we talk about? Like when children are being abused, if a, you know, a, an adult befriends them, they keep secret, you know, that sort of thing. I'm a grown up, you know, like I am a grown ass 40, 50, 30, 20, whatever year old person. Uh, I know what's going on. I'm not susceptible to grooming. We all are. We all are in a many, many different contexts, whether it's romantic relationships, sometimes work uh, relationships, any kind of exploitative relationship where there's some sort of power imbalance. Now, I got to give you a disclaimer. I am not a therapist. I am not a trained or licensed mental health professional. Granted, yes, I work with a lot of therapists and mental health professionals, so I'm adjacent to that world. And, you know, maybe I know a little more than your average armchair, whatever. But take what I'm saying with, you know, maybe not just one grain of salt, a few grains of salt, right? But with everything, what I'm hoping this is, is this plants a little seed or spark if this is something that you've recognized in your life and make make you pause and go wait a minute and then look further into this don't just be like well Sonny Megatron says and I am no end all be all okay I am I light the spark <laughs> and then go go uh go make a fire and learn more let this be your inspiration so what is grooming Grooming is a way that somebody slowly normalizes an abnormal relationship to the point where the other person doesn't really know that something's funky. We're all familiar with like the terms gaslighting and all of those things. Coercive control, that's another one. And when I say abuser or target, I want to make something clear, first of all. When people are abusers, like good people can abuse, right? Like people are not one-sided, like you're either all good or you're all bad. People are really complex. Uh, and that's how, you know, a lot of abusive people get to move about the world is because in so many other contexts, they're really great people. And or they seem like really great people, whatever, you know, it's all different types. Also, not all abusers are these sinister, like evil, 
uh, super villains that have this big plan, like, oh, first I'm going to love bomb. <laughs> then, <laughs> no, uh, oftentimes this happens and the abuser doesn't really realize that they're abusers. So I just want to make sure that we're seeing that through that lens. Like this is real complex. Again, I'm not a psychiatrist, a therapist, et cetera, but this goes deep. It's it's not black and white. Like nothing is black and white. Nothing's good or bad or whatever. Everything has lots of layers of complexity and nuance. And in this instance, that's really key to see because a lot of times I know and I'm speaking you know, a lot of this is from personal experience. I've lived a life, y'all. I've had some things. I've had some relationship. Oh my God, it's a lot. But I got, I guess, fooled or taken or whatever word because I thought from everything I've learned from society and my friends and people talking, well, if somebody was a bad person or somebody was abusive, they would obviously be a bad person. And this person is so genuine and nice and, you know, sincere in a lot of ways from their heart. And they don't believe that they're an abuser. So I was like, so they can't be an abuser. And it's complex. It is complex. Just throwing that out there. So gaslighting is when the abuser makes the target feel as if their reality isn't their reality. And we throw the word gaslighting around to like mean all these things that it's not. And it's a very specific, you know, maybe I did something, I don't know. Hey, I thought I washed the dishes. How come this is a weird example, but it's the only thing I can think of. I thought I washed the dishes and now they're dirty. Didn't I? No, you didn't. You didn't wash it. Like I purposely know that I am telling you something that didn't happen to alter your reality to my advantage. So coercive control. It is, and I'm just like, I'm pulling generic definitions off the internet, right? Just to be concise. And I will put in the show notes some of the articles that I pulled. And as you'll see, like some of the, uh, you know, the steps of grooming are pretty universal. Like you can pull up a dozen articles and they're all going to give you the same sort of steps. Um, But coercive control has been defined as a pattern of controlling behaviors that create an unequal power dynamic in a relationship. These behaviors give the perpetrator power over their partner, making it difficult for them to leave. Sometimes coercive control can escalate to physical abuse. However, when it doesn't escalate, coercive control is emotional abuse that can cause psychological trauma. So why are we talking about grooming and these sorts of things in BDSM relationships. It's because the way BDSM relationships are configured and because a lot of people who are maybe new to BDSM or they don't have great boundary setting skills, you know, they have some of their own work to do that makes them easy targets for manipulation. And again, not that anyone is ever, ever responsible, or it's their fault because they were targeted or abused, right? This is oftentimes what people who are abusive, whether those people realize they're abusers or not, are looking for. So why did this come up for me? 
number of reasons. One of them was the BDSM test episode that I did with Midori and Joe Zarate Sanderlin, the kinky therapist. It was in June, I think, of 2022. And I'll put the link in the show notes. That brought up a lot, a lot of groomy feelings. And uh, for Ropecraft, Ropecraft is a, a BDSM conference that concentrates on rope bondage. They are doing a virtual winter class series. So we did a, a screening of that episode podcast and then talked to folks about the questions of the BDSM.org test. We don't like that test. If this is the first you're hearing about it, go listen to that episode. Um, and one of the things about the BDSM test is it seemed very groomy to all three of us. And that's some of the examples are a lot of the questions were, would you, if you found the perfect BDSM relationship of your dreams, sell all of your possessions and move across the country to be your master sex slave? And there were just a lot of questions like that where I'm like, this this keeps coming up. Like whoever wrote these questions, it feels like they had an agenda, right? So that's one of the major things that brought it up. And I, I did um, a conference recently for uh, therapists and mental health professionals where a lot of abuse within BDSM and how to tell the difference between an abusive relationship that is also one that includes BDSM versus just a BDSM relationship that isn't unhealthy, like how somebody, whether they're in that relationship or someone looking from the outside can tell the difference. Because oftentimes they look the same from the outside looking in and therein lies the problem to somebody who is new who doesn't know these things or doesn't have these skills to be very autonomous in their boundaries, you can't tell the difference between what's unhealthy and what's healthy, or at least it's difficult to. And I'm going to go with the classic example, right? I'm going to go with the stereotype, although this can happen in any kind of relationship, a dominant can be groomed and manipulated by a submissive. It doesn't matter the gender. It can happen to anybody. I'm going to use the example of what I tend to see the most often and my own lived experience as a person who is a femme, a woman, etc., and as somebody who started out as a submissive in BDSM, and really looking back at my life, someone who before I admitted I was kinky or started acting on it, was probably living out some of my BDSM inclinations to play with power imbalance and uh, oppressive uh, situations and relationships. And it's fine to eroticize those. And I think what I was doing is really I was trying to eroticize those, but I actually ended up just walking right into those in my everyday life and not in a play way. And that was a disaster. So when you are a new submissive, and let's say you are somebody who is not a cis male person, right? There's a couple things going on. One, frenzy. 
Oh my goodness, Frenzy. When you first learn about BDSM and you first, maybe you are going out on dating sites and starting to meet people or you're going to your local munches or your community events or you, whatever you're doing, it, you're like a kid in a candy store, right? It is like, oh my goodness, it is so cool. It is so overwhelming. Heavens forbid, like me, if you're, you know, neurodivergent, so you really like, this is my new identity now. And you like hyper focus on everything BDSM for like months and months straight. Yeah, your your head's in a different world because you're so excited, right? It's also a big life milestone when let's say you have... I don't know, come from a sex negative environment, which really most of us have because we live in the United States, right? Uh, even if our, our close circle is very open-minded and sex positive, we still have that sex negative influence. Our our systems here, you know, I'm not going to get into all the, but I've talked about it all, you know, patriarchy, capitalism, all of that, all the oppressive stuff, racism, all the isms, right? Rely on control, rely on dehumanizing people, reducing them to a very like, they're good, they're bad, they're this, they're that, very simple state. And a lot of that is fueled by shame. We live in a culture that controls us with shame. So especially for women, it's like, oh my, we're too prudish. Oh, we're, we're such sluts. We're wearing too much makeup. We're not wearing enough makeup. Like we can never be the right thing. Right. And so that's why I'm, I'm talking about this from my experience, because I grew up socialized as a woman. So I had to deal with all of those things. Right. And then when I got into dating relationships and was going for a power exchange dynamic, but wasn't kinky yet, which, you know, was just a very unhealthy relationship. All of that played in. Right. So you're dealing with all of that. And for the first time, maybe you're like, oh. I'm going to shed all my shame. I'm going to learn to live authentically. You feel fucking amazing. Your life has changed, right? You are in that headspace of like, wow. So then you're dealing with the lack of knowledge. And this came up, I taught a media literacy course for like therapists and and, and care professionals. I think I'm going to roll it out to like y'all too. I'm going to do a version of it. But it's really hard to find misinformation or to find information good information about kink and BDSM online in books, et cetera, for a whole lot of reasons. And uh, there is so much BDSM misinformation out there to the point like the BDSM.org test, which if you're reading that and you think, well, everyone takes the BDSM.org test, everyone has it on their fat life profiles. I'm 86% submissive and 42% primal and you know, whatever. It must be legit, right? It doesn't matter that half the questions are like, would you give up everything to be a sex slave? To, you know, it's like, oh my God. So that's normalizing this really unhealthy stuff. And it looks like well, that's an educational thing. These are our foundations, right? Everyone I met at the munch or when I joined FetLife said, well, the first thing you got to do is take that BDSM.org test. So we're already starting off at a really you know, shaky ground. So then there's the normalization of control that happens in the process of grooming very slowly. And we're going to get into the steps of grooming in a minute, but very slowly, 
the control that one partner has over the other that is very imbalanced is very slowly normalized. So it seems like nothing's happening. Now, because in BDSM, we are often playing out in a fantasy role play sense, what in the real world would be an unbalanced, unhealthy relationship. It's really easy to conflate. Wait, is this real? Or is this like my BDSM dynamic? Right. Um, And I'll, I'll tell you what I mean by that. So I have this concept of multidimensional kink, which I I know it's going to illuminate what I'm talking about. So this is really helpful to keep in mind, whether you're new to kink, whether you've been doing it for 20 years, um, and especially when you are negotiating, when you are establishing boundaries with partners, uh, especially if you are that person who is in the dynamic, the S-type, who is going to be on the bottom end of that unbalanced power that you're playing out in your kink relationship. Think of yourself as existing in two dimensions. There's like two of you that exist at one time. And maybe this is kind of the matrix, like do whatever analogy you want in your head, right? It it could be parallel universe. I don't know, whatever, right? So you have your play persona, which is the person you are when you're in your dynamic. So if I'm a submissive, that is when I'm submissive. That is when I play by the rules. Like if our rule is like, I don't question my uh, dominant or I, I don't blah, 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 whatever. Cool. That's when I play by those rules. Right. And then we have another self, which is our autonomous neutral self. And that's just who you are not submissive, not playing by these unbalanced power dynamics. And that is who you are when you negotiate, right? When you are talking about your wants and your dislikes and your limits and your boundaries and all of that stuff, you cannot do it from a place of in play, like in that play container. You can't do it from a headspace of being in your play dynamic, Because then you cannot be autonomous and stand the fuck up for yourself, right? So when I say you have these two selves, you have your autonomous self that is there at all times. You have your kinky self that is there at all times, right? And when you are in play, and when I say play, I'm not trying to trivialize kink. A lot of people, especially those who are in like 24-7 dynamics, they hear people call what we do play and they're like, play is what children do. That is trivializing it. No, 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 no. Kink is customizable. That is my, you know, catchphrase. I will shout it from the rooftops. But when we are in our kink space, we are in very compartmentalized roles that have a very certain protocol, a very certain set of rules. There are things that we can do and we can't do. And I'm talking either if you're a dominant or a submissive, right? And that's what I mean when I say play, you are in that container of kink, right? And let's say I'm a submissive, 
I have my play self is in the driver's seat, doing all the things, abiding by all the submissive agreements that I agreed to when we negotiated, right? But my autonomous self is always present. And my autonomous self is sitting in the back seat, like a backseat driver, watching everything. So if like, I don't know, my car starts to go out of control or there's, you know, something in the road and I don't see it. My autonomous self is always watching. It can grab the wheel and go, whoa, it's like you're going to hit that raccoon in the road. Or, hey, you have to safe word because you're about to hit a PTSD trigger or something's not right or whatever. So a lot of times when we get into kink, and I especially see this in new folks who are an S types who really are like, they have wanted to unleash this part of themselves their whole lives. And it feels so good. They throw their autonomous selves in the garbage and think like that part of them doesn't exist. And that makes it really difficult to be like, whoa, hey, wait a minute. Something's happening. That's not cool here. Timeout, safe word, whatever it is. Right. So think about when you're doing kink, those two dimensions, and we all have them, whether we're dominant, whether we're submissive, D-types, S-types, doesn't matter, right? We got our play self. Sometimes we put that forward. Sometimes we got to pull that play self back and put our autonomous self forward. So keep that in mind. Groomers take advantage of the fact, again, whether they consciously realize they're doing it or not, of the fact that We feel when we're new at kink, or even when we're not new at kink, like we are just our play selves, like submissive is part of my identity, right? This is who I am. For some people, it's more of a leisure activity. And it's like something they take on and off like a sweater. And for other people, it's like, no, I'm fucking submissive all the time. This is who I am. And even if it's who you are, and even if it's your identity all the time, you still have that autonomous self sitting in the back seat waiting. So keep that in mind. That is one thing that groomers can take advantage of, right? Those bl- boundaries end up getting blurred. The selves end up getting blurred, right? The normalization of control, it's perfectly fine to have really intense control or unbalanced control in a consensually negotiated container. But when that spills over into other areas and that spills over into control over the autonomous part of ourselves or control over areas of our life that we're like, this is not the the kink area of my life. You can't control, you know, whatever it is. That's when we've got a problem. So why do people groom? You know, I I keep stressing, like, it's not always calculated. And I, I think that's a big kind of collective misstep that we all have when we try to conceptualize, like, what is an abuser? Or we try to wrap our heads around, like, when we find out someone in our community or one of our friends or somebody that it's like, what? I can't even imagine that person doing this, like what I know of them, they are so great. And they can still be abusers, though. You know, and oftentimes people will knee jerk reaction to like, but my friend is so awesome. There's no way. And then that's no good for anyone. It's like we need to accept that like some people can be really great in some respects and really horrible all at the same time. And sometimes those people don't even know they're really horrible. So 
it could just be for the control. It feels good. It feels, you know, and again, I'm not a mental health professional, but there could be all sorts of reasons, you know, some sort of like narcissistic tendencies, uh, unhealthy coping mechanisms. Maybe that person is not very emotionally adept or they're kind of emotionally uh, underdeveloped, right? And they're looking to push their negative feelings or their their trauma or whatever on like to lash out at somebody else, right? Uh, maybe it's an ego boost to be like, I have a sex slave that will do anything I want and they quit their job and moved across the country to be my sex slave or whatever it is, right? Sometimes it is for more obvious exploitation like pushing that partner into doing sex work or, you know, more uh, what we would generally think of as like, well, this is what adult grooming is, right? Isn't it like someone, you know, who is uh, subtly luring you into sex trafficking or something like that? Absolutely, that can be. That's not the only thing. And it's really, really hard to tell the difference, as I said, between are we playing what looks like an abusive dynamic, but it's all consensual and we're doing it with intention and we know what's behind it and we can stop and talk and I can put my autonomous self forward when something is like going a little off the rails and I know that you will then respond and be like, oh shit, and then we'll talk about it and everything will be good and we'll work it out or not. It's hard to tell from the outside looking in and sometimes it's hard to tell from the inside looking in. I often say in kink, it's not what we do, but it is how, not even how we do it, but the intention behind why we're doing it. So now I am going to uh, talk about cis male doms. I often say that in kink, what we are doing, whether we realize it or not, we are perverting social norms and hierarchies, consensually perverting social norms and hierarchies for our pleasure. And what exactly do I mean by that? Think of your stereotypical, and again, I'm just leaning in the stereotypes, but don't think that's all relationships, please. Stereotypical relationship. Let's say you are a 1950s housewife. And this is a huge like internal battle between a lot of hetero cis women who are like, but I'm supposed to be a feminist. And I know that like having a man push me around is wrong and blah, 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 blah. But like there is something about it in the context of kink or sex that is so fucking hot. And even though I am absolutely feminist and you know maybe i'm even like an activist in my my day-to-day default life right like i am like really feminist uh in the bedroom or at home i want to put on a little frilly apron and make my husband or whatever dinner and act like a 1950s housewife and why why do i do that that doesn't make sense first of all you're not abnormal we tend to eroticize things that in other circumstances, we're like, hell no. But at the right time, in the right context, we're like, oh my God, that's so hot, but it's so wrong. And why? So when I say we pervert social norms and hierarchies for our pleasure, think about that stereotypical 1950s housewife and like a domineering uh, authoritarian male dom. We are putting these 
very traditional, prescriptive, awful gender roles that our society has upheld. We're like putting them under a microscope and we're taking certain qualities from those archetypes and we're putting them on like hyperdrive. We're amplifying them to like a cartoonish level. And we're we're being very one-dimensional with it. You know, like we're not the complete three-dimensional 1950s housewife that really existed in 1957 or whatever. Um, but we are like play acting and and really punching up some of those characteristics, right, to a uh, unrealistic degree, because that's fun. So that's what I mean when I say we pervert social norms and hierarchies for our pleasure. We tend to play with things that are taboo. We tend to get turned on by things that it's like, I know I shouldn't be turned on with this by this, right? We tend to reconcile the power dynamics that we see in the world that we live in. And we don't have to know that we're doing this or we don't have to know why we're doing this. Like a lot of people, when they start thinking this deeply about it, they're like, fuck, this is a turnoff. Like, it's just hot. Can I just leave it? It's just hot. I don't want to psychoanalyze myself. This is not sexy. And you don't have to psychoanalyze yourself. Some people like some people are just BDSM geeks and they're like, oh, my God, my brain. Cool. Tell me more. But A lot of times, this is what we're doing. And we dive into it to the point where we are like shifting our consciousness, we're going to subspace or, or top space or or that sort of thing, right? So perverting social norms and hierarchies for our pleasure. Keep that in your mind. Huh? Okay. So this is all fitting in to BDSM and to the steps of grooming in a way that, ooh, that's a good fit, but a bad fit, because it's a really good fit. So go on any website and look up like the stages of grooming. And it's very similar for adults versus children. It's pretty much the same sort of process. It's just the details are different, right? And so first, it's like targeting the victim is the first stage of grooming. And again, I'll put some links of like some websites where I pulled up the stages. So you can like there's one like Oprah.com and Psychology Today and, you know, all these. So the first stage of grooming is based on the abuser's like ease of access or the perceived vulnerability of their target. Okay, I'm new to BDSM. I have you know, been suppressed my whole life. I'm completely vulnerable because I don't know anything about this lifestyle. Maybe I'm going through this like emotional discovery with myself. There's lots and lots and lots of stuff, right? Maybe I just got out of an abusive relationship. Like actually when I got into kink, that was my thing. I, I was in some horrible relationships where I couldn't explore, even though I felt these feelings. So when I was finally free of those relationships, I was able to explore. Luckily, I did not encounter somebody who saw that as a vulnerability in me. But that's a common scenario for uh, women or marginalized folks in general, you know, basically people who are not cis men who are getting into kink. So then number two is the inappropriate relationship. So like 
Uh, and I'm just going to read what this article says. The concept of power dynamics is often mentioned when discussing inappropriate relationships. In cases where the abuser is older, wealthy, or better connected, the power differential is one of the aspects of the relationship that increases the vulnerability of the victim. So let's think about that. If we are in a DS really, or we're entering into a DS scenario, we are S types. We don't know about like the autonomous self versus the kink self. And let's say we get a message on FetLife or whatever. And the first message is like, well, hello, you know, whatever. I don't know, baby girl or whatever. Um, you know, I am your master. You must call me, sir. This is your task I want you to do. And we're getting this in an email and we're like, oh, I've never done this before. This is like all the BDSM erotica I've been reading. This is what the Dom does. And it's so fucking hot. And I'm finally here. I'm finally, someone's in my DMs. Okay, this is what's supposed to be happening. It's not what's supposed to be happening, but it's like nobody has, is telling us that. I'm telling you that. I'm telling you that. Um, so that's why that's a red flag. You'll hear people say like red flag if somebody approaches you. And and again, it could be the other way around. If a, if you're dominant and a submissive approaches you like, well, hello, you know, sir, mistress, whatever your title is and blah, blah, blah. And it's like asserting that power dynamic onto you and you don't even fucking know each other. You haven't negotiated this. That is a red flag. So that happens a lot. And then we do have the power imbalance. And I've talked about this in a few episodes and I will, I'll try to find what number episode I'll, I'll put it in the, the show notes, but my um, consent model possum, P-A-S-S-M. And I'm not going to go over it again, but it's basically like to examine within yourself if you consenting, because a lot of times if we're in these con coercive controlling relationships and we're in like we've been groomed, we feel like we are giving consent. We feel like we are in a place of autonomy, but we are actually not. But we don't even recognize that within ourselves. So my possum model, which I'm working on some workbooks and I'm writing a book right now, it will be out for you with questions like I'm hoping in a couple of months, so hang tight. But this model helps you examine, is the consent I'm giving really coming from an autonomous space? Or is there something influencing it, like power imbalance? Power imbalance, well, first of all, you're a dominant. That's intimidating. Uh, secondly, maybe you're experiencing BDSM, and I've just entered the community. I don't know anything, right? We will also hear about sad to say, community leaders being abusers. And it's like, cool, because yeah, you seem awesome because you're, you teach classes. Everyone knows who you are. You've been in the community for like 10 years. You're a pillar of, blah, 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 blah. there are lots of ways we can have power and balance. We can, you know, even if it's like white male doms who are older, it's usually you see people who are older, who maybe have, um, you know, they are higher on the privilege ladder for whatever reasons. And they're always dating 22-year-old AFAB, that's assigned female at birth, partners, 
that are people of color and they're very quiet and, you know, and you start to see a pattern. And it, that's not to say like, oh, if you're a middle aged guy dating a younger femme person of color that you're an abuser. No, absolutely not. It's like red flags can stand alone sometimes and not be a red flag. It's patterns. It's like when they start running in herds like Jurassic Park, you know, then it's like, oh, wait a minute. Okay. So if that's one red flag, that's like one to like keep your eye on. Like, I don't know. There may not be any other red flags. And maybe that is a legit situation. And the people in that situation where it, it is a red flag, they they pass it off. Well, look at that person. Look at that couple or look at that dynamic or look at that polycule or whatever. There's an older guy and they're fine. Maybe they are fine, but it doesn't mean you are. You know? So again, it's complex. Nothing is like black and white, bad or good or, you know, so. Next, I didn't talk about, I think I said I was going to talk about this, people who are higher on that privilege ladder. There's a question in one of the classes that I was teaching on one of the conferences a few weeks back of like, is it bad if, let's say, a white male dominant enjoys being a dominant? Is that coming from a bad place? Is that coming from a place of like, oh, my God, I have all this privilege in my life and I like, you know, can act kind of oppressive and shitty and not even know it just because like that's how I've been groomed by society. And like men are victims of patriarchy, too. I'm not saying men are bad. It's like the dynamics that society has set us up in like they it hurts us all. It hurts us all, maybe in different ways, but it hurts us all. So the question was like, should uh, cis men who are dominant have all this privilege be dominant or is that inherently wrong? I'm going to go back to, it's not what you do. It's the intention you do it with. It's the place that it's coming from. So I could see two male dominants that act exactly the same. I wouldn't, and maybe one is like, man, so self-aware, so like just, mm, and the other one is a horrible person. I would not be able to tell the difference. I might not even be able to tell the difference if I was that person submissive, maybe not at first and maybe not for a while if I was like also fooling myself kind of. And, you know, I say the more privilege that you have, the more work you need to do. And that is especially Especially true if the kink role or power dynamic or archetype that you embody is also one of privilege. So white male doms, get on with your bad self, like have fun, but make sure you did the work. Make sure it's coming from a good place. Make sure you understand the power dynamics are at play and how they are received by your partner who was not only marginalized and exploited in your consensual kink container or play headspace. Understand how that intersects with those same identities 
that they hold out in the real world. And that the damage that can be done if that's not done with care and intention and the extra care and intention that you have to have going into those roles to make sure that whatever kink dynamic you're playing with this partner is also a positive experience for them. That's a big tall order and I'm not going to be able to tell you how to do it in like a two minute you know, thing, but no, that's what's on your plate. You know, they, they say, do the work. That is the work. That's the work you have to do. So that's all I'm going to say on that. Let's keep going with the steps of grooming. So we've had like, you know, targeting the person, they're vulnerable, yada, yada. Number two, we've had, there is an inappropriate relationship with the skewed power dynamics. And in kink, we're purposely, they're consensually skewed power dynamics. And in an unhealthy relationship, it can be hard to tell what really is consensual and what isn't and where the, the like the two worlds bleed together and that gray area. And then number three is gaining the victim's trust or that I don't like to say victim targets trust for many abusers. And again, I'm just reading the thing. Establishing trust at this stage is key. They use the flattery trick offering gifts, attention, sharing secrets, and other means to make them feel that they have a caring relationship while simultaneously training them to keep the relationship a secret. So there's a lot here because a BDSM relationship is a very, you're putting yourself in a very vulnerable position and it takes trust on all partners' parts, right? Very deep trust. You experience intimacy in these types of relationships very quickly and very deeply. Maybe like you have never experienced before. It is fucking life-changing. It is like soul-shattering, but in the best way. Like you are, like the the colors are brighter, <laughs> right? Like everything is great. Your orgasms are amazing, whatever it is, right? So, that's a lot of trust. And then think about, again, we're going to the stereotype, right? A lot of times when we've got the cis male dom, AFAB, uh, S-type, um, there's a lot of like, I mean, I'm authoritarian. That's like my job as a dom. But I also care about you. I take care of you like you're my pet, you're my, you know, I treasure you, I blah, blah, blah. Or maybe I'm, I mean an authoritarian, but I'm, I'm doing it because like I'm playing the role of a dom and I'm doing it for your own good because I care about you. Um, so there's all of that stuff. Number four is fulfilling a need. The abuser seeks to fill a void in the person's life, offering a listening ear. It can also involve persuading the victim that the abuser alone can fulfill their need. Again, think about, I've just gotten into a BDSM relationship. I don't know any other doms. You are giving me something that I didn't even know existed, that I don't even know. Are you the only one that can give it to me? I don't know. I've never met anyone like you before. Like you are my fucking world right now. Then we have isolating the, the victim or target, which is classic. You see this in so many, you know, lists of like signs of an abusive relationship. Classic abuser technique. Abusers do this by putting themselves between the victim and their loved ones or caregivers. As a result, they may be reluctant to meet or speak to friends or family. A lot of folks when they're in BDSM, they have to compartmentalize their life because there's a lot of judgment. 
maybe someone who's in kink, maybe they have a friend or two that knows, right? Maybe they don't. They're already isolated. Who are they, right? Right? Who are they going to, are they going to go, I'm going to put on Facebook, like I was my dom and, you know, I was, uh, I said my safe word and blah, 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 blah. And then, so then all your friends can chime in like, honey, that's not right. No. So we don't really have anybody to talk to. This is why I advise folks, especially getting into the community who are new, make friends. When you go to that munch, don't go to that munch to find a play partner. Go to that munch to make some friends, some like-minded friends. Because when you get into a situation, they can be like, hmm, help you put your head, you know, screw your head back on straight. Be like, that's not normal. Don't let that person tell you that's normal and that's the way things are. Don't let them tell you that submissives have to earn their safe words and they can be taken away as punishment. That is not how this works. If you have nobody to talk to that or talk to about that, how the hell are you going to know? And then the end stage is abuse. You know, at this stage, the abuse itself begins. It can involve like assault within the like sexual assault within the relationship. Um, it could be forced criminal activity, violence against others. Like it could be all sorts of things like the classic sort of grooming we think of. Right. Or it could just be like, haha, now you're mine right? Whatever. Now you're stroking my ego or now, I don't know, I have someone to take my shit out on. I have uh, somebody to blame when I'm feeling awful because I haven't addressed my trauma and I lash out. Could be lots and lots of reasons and oftentimes a reason that that person doesn't even know. And the sixth and final stage, maintaining control. So once you've got that, it's like, it can go years, it can go decades, it can go, you know, for forever. Like I said, I wasn't in a relationship, it wasn't a BDSM one, but it was, you know, similar, but we didn't really have rules. Um, And for the longest time, I was like, no, everything's cool. I'm cool. I can send to the, it's fine. Like, and then I was like, Oh my God. Like once I had my light bulb go on, I looked back at how many ever years and I was like, Oh, this has been so fucked up for so long. What was, how, what was I thinking? Oh my God. Was I lying to myself? Was I, my perspective was skewed? Like what? Again, it's never the target's fault. Never, 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 never. But it's like, you know, a lot of us can relate to having that like wake up light bulb moment of like, what? What was I, what, you know, and that is what they take advantage of, right? And it's like the the maintaining control. Uh, maybe there's consequences. Maybe there are threats, maybe all sorts of things, right? And in a, let's say, vanilla relationship where this is going on, uh, oftentimes it, it might not be like a direct, like, if you do this, I will do that. But it's more kind of subtle under the radar, right? You know, if you do that, then that person will do this, even though it wasn't explicitly said. It's not as obvious, but you know what the consequences would be. Well, in kink, we're consenting to having punishments and consequences. And again, if we don't know the difference between like, when should our, should our autonomous self grab the wheel 
And when should it like take a nap in the back seat and be like, have fun, kinky play self, go knock your socks off. If our autonomous self is like, you know, we didn't even bring them in, in the car ride and we went on a road kinky road trip. They're not even there. Save our asses. <laughs> um, yeah, that's that's a problem. So, yeah, when when we talk about grooming in kink, this is oftentimes what we mean. And I don't want to give the impression that this happens like in kink. Oh my God, everyone's an abuser. Oh my God. because No, you know what? This happens in all sorts of situations, vanilla scenarios. Like this is part of being a person in the world with other people. And some of those people aren't the healthiest emotionally. And we risk getting into a relationship of one form or another with that person. It could be romantic. It could be a work relationship. It could be a friendship. It could be, there's all sorts of scenarios. And this kind of grooming can happen in many, many, many different contexts. The thing about kink is there's like a built-in in for I don't have to hide the fact that I'm asserting my power and my control over you. I can be out in the open with it. I don't have to hide the fact that if you do this, that will be the immediate consequence because that's the rules. The only thing I have to do is take advantage of the fact that a lot of folks in kink don't know where their fantasy kink self begins and or ends or whatever, and where their fully autonomous, like, protector self is. And it's not clear cut. Like, there's a, like, overlappy gray area. Like, it's hard. I'm not saying it's easy. It's hard. Even for me, right? It's hard. We're human. Nothing we do is easy, especially with our emotions. So this is, like I said, to plant a, a seed to go, huh, interesting. Okay. Let me look at some of these relationships that maybe I'm in or red flags that I might see or whatever, through a different lens. So we're all more aware. You never know what that can help you avoid or even can help you avoid within yourself. Because like I said, even though I use the scenario of dominant cis male and submissive woman, that is not the only scenario. This can happen to anybody or by anybody. And like I said, you know, abusers aren't like, hi, hi I'm an abuser. I'm going to keep it a secret. And this is my master plan for today. No, like abu- if you talk to abusers, oftentimes they genuinely are like, what the fuck? I'm not doing anything. It's everybody else. It's not me. Like, and they mean it. Like they don't realize it. Listener, have you thought of the possibility that could be you? We're all quiet. That was like a sobering moment. But all of us 
have violated somebody's consent. And I don't mean in like some, you know, grand criminal way. We're not all 100% perfect, good all the time. We're not all 100% bad all the time. We fuck up. We do bad shit without even realizing we're doing it. And any of us can do that. And so bring it full circle. This is one of the reasons that I so heavily stress that kink is customizable. Because out in the mainstream, there are these very like cookie cutter, black and whites, one dimensional rules that the way they're presented to us don't take any critical analysis. They don't take any understanding of nuance. It's just like, well, this is supposed to be that all the time. Guess what? Nope. 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 There is not one rule in kink. That is a universal rule all the time. The only universal rule is we need to have consent, but there is also no universal way or one true way or one right way to go about establishing that consent. That's all customizable too. So it's kind of like when you're approaching kink, and especially if you're new and you know nothing about this world, it's like in school when the teacher's like, your final project is to write a 15-page paper on anything you want. And you're like, what? Are you going to give us a choice? Are you going to give us like a general topic? Like, they're like, no, anything. And you're like, fuck, I don't even know where to begin. Like, what the fuck? What do you mean everything? Like, what? Um, so that's how it is getting into kink or even being in kink. It's like, we have no starting point. We don't even know what our possibilities are. How are we supposed to discern this makes sense versus, ooh, this could be kind of damaging or unhealthy. So I, I have a bunch of, of, of frameworks. I'll just pull one up really quick here um, and, and walk you quickly through it. And I'm going to make this into a flow chart. I have directional issues, though, and I tried to put it in a flow chart. And I was like, oh, God, this arrow needs to point to that. If, the, if you answer yes, then go here. If you answer no. And it was a mess. So this will be be in the book and I'm currently making a workbook page for it right now or a flowchart page. Um, so to figure out what what rule that I come across and can't can I break? Right. It takes a little bit of analysis. So this breakable rule analysis is how to discern what is a best practice. So a best practice that we'll just like go over real quick is one is the the sub has all the power. You'll hear that a lot. Sub has all the power. The sub has all the power. The sub has all the power. Of course, like, why wouldn't a sub have all the power, right? Um, but let's, and then you hear some people go, what the fuck? That, pff, that's unhealthy. That's what, why? Why? You're trying to take power away from the sub. First of all, this is not something we could look at as like black and white. Like either the sub has all the power, none of the power. One person has the power. The other one doesn't. Can we all have the power? Uh, and then what is the power? What do we mean when we say power? That's a big word. Is that like control over the scene? Is that really right? So in order to break this down, there's like three pieces to be like, okay, one, what issue is that rule attempting to address or solve, right? That's like a common universal issue. Two, are there any variables or circumstances that have changed since that rule was made or that 
we're collectively now becoming aware of more. There's more awareness around something new that wasn't when the rule was made. And then three, if we're still going and we're like, yeah, it's still a valid rule. Um, how can that rule be updated or customized to serve us right now and not inadvertently be damaging in a way that we didn't mean? So let's break that down. Uh, what What's this rule attempting to solve? That it is common in king communities, and this is like goes way back to like the 80s when like the community as we know it right now is just being formed. And, you know, we were just coming up with our early consent models like SSC. There wasn't a lot of awareness around this stuff. And so they didn't want people coming into kink thinking that it's just a free for all and they can do whatever the fuck they want. They didn't want it was their way of kind of explaining like how I explained the autonomous self, like the kink dimensions, you have the autonomous self, and then you have the play self. It was their way of sort of addressing like, you still have control, even though you're in a situation where you've consensually given up control. And that's a good thing. Because people were either purposely or inadvertently taking advantage of that. And it was creating unhealthy situations and non consensual situations and abuse. Blah, 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 right? Okay, cool. That's cool. Let's keep going. Uh, so like, then, you know, there's other things we can ask ourselves about the rule, but I'm not going to get into teaching this whole framework. But anyway, if you, when you get the flow chart, you can see it. So we determine like this rule exists for a valid reason, like a good fucking reason. It is preventing abuse, bad stuff. Cool. Let's keep going. Uh, so now what's different? You know, when that rule was a thing and everyone was like, cool. And now people are like, that's not cool. Why are they saying it's not cool? What has changed? What's changed is our awareness of the conse- the unintended consequences of that rule started to become uh, one-sided and impinge on the person who was a dominant in a, in a scenario. And they started becoming like kink dispensers. Well, if you're a dominant, you don't get any say in what you like to do, what you don't like to do. I'm the submissive. I have all the power. I have all the control. You're going to be my kink dispenser and do what I want. And this is a two-way relationship. We need to mutually consent to things. So it was like, Okay, inadvertently, the dominance wants and needs were getting like stepped all over. And they're, you know, was pushing their autonomous selves in the backseat and just making them like a, you know, service tops, basically. And it's like, no, 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 we got me in the middle here. So how can we change this rule to still uphold the spirit of why it was in, you know, why it was created? but to compensate for this like new unintended consequence that's, you know, come up since this rule has become popularized the way I do it. And again, kink is customizable. You can think of this any way you want. The way I think of it as the sub has all the power over their own autonomy. Cause that to me, that's the reminder of like, you got your autonomous self in the back seat and you could pull, pull your autonomous self up to the front seat to take the wheel at any time. Don't let somebody tell you that you, when you have given up your quote power, which we can de- deconstruct that word all day within the context of a scene or a dynamic or whatever your kink container is that still does not mean you've given up your autonomy because your autonomy is what helps you 
establish or keep your consent. It's it's that, you know, autonomous self from the back seat, like, hey, you better call your safe word. Call it right now, right? So that's, in a nutshell, the breakable rule analysis. But yeah, that's why I really stress kink is customizable because we have all these cookie cutter rules and best practices and a lot of the best practices exist for very good reasons. But they become boiled down to this one dimensional thing where they lose their nuance. And then when they lose their nuance, there's a bunch of people going, but there's an exception. But wait a minute. And then the people who are doing things in, for ill intent, then twist that ex- exception to their advantage. I'll give you one more example, and then we'll, we'll wrap this up. I know your brain's chewing on a lot, is you don't have to use safe words, right? And when I say that, I don't mean like I'm using no or don't or like plain language as my safe word. In my mind, I still consider that like a safe word. It is a word we've agreed. If I say you will, you know, we'll stop and whatever. So a lot of folks who are 24 seven dynamics that have been doing it for years upon years upon years are like, no, legit, we don't play with safe words. Um, And I have talked about this in my safe word, like double episode, which was a few episodes back. I'll put it in the description. I'm not going to get into re-explaining it. That is totally legitimate for some people, but that is a very particular rare circumstance that is usually between partners that have been together for a very, very long time. If you were to examine those dynamics or those relationships, you would uncover a mechanism by which, I mean, most provided they're doing this in a healthy way. I'm not saying everything's, you know, but assuming they're doing this in a healthy way, oftentimes you will uncover a mechanism by which they do have autonomous consent. It's just not something that they traditionally classify as a safer. Like between them, it could be a look. It could be this subtle little thing that is more of you know nonverbal body language territory that anyone watching would never pick up on but because these people know so know each other so well that's their way of signaling however it's also risky we're not great at nonverbal communication i could give you a look and you don't know what it means and then we end up in a situation but we've both and again provided this is a healthy dynamic we've both entered into this knowing those risks and knowing that something can go wrong and really knowing each other, knowing our relationship after, you know, hours upon hours upon hours over years and years and years and years and years of negotiation. This is where we've ended up. So, oh, like, you know, one of the best practices is like always use a safe word. And then these folks are like, no, that's not true because we don't use safe words. Legit. Like we're both right here. But why is that a best practice? Because like in most situations, it's really risky. It's like super rare. It's like needle and haystack kind of rare that you'll find folks that like really don't use safe words and everything's like really rock solid in their dynamic. And again, people who have ill intentions or even maybe not even people who have ill intentions, maybe people that just don't know, honestly don't know. And they have good intentions They're building their kink upon a faulty framework that like opens the door for abuse to be happening down the line inadvertently and they don't even realize, you know, it's not all sinister. So 
yeah, that's why we say everyone should have safe words, right? It's a best practice. It exists for a reason. Then there's one true wayisms that don't exist for any good reason. Like a dominant must always act authoritative or a dominant can't receive, a dominant can't bottom. Bullshit, bullshit. Kink is customizable. Do whatever the fuck you want. So there we go. I just thought I would open this year, 2023, with some down and dirty foundations about kink that I think are very relevant to our everyday lives and what we're out there doing as people who are exploring and meeting others. And it's these little things that I mean, maybe they're not so little. They seem little. They're things that we gloss over in our community because I've I've mentioned grooming to so many adults in our community. And they're like, grooming? That happens to like little kids with creepy uncles or that happens to people who are being trafficked or it happens in workplaces with friends, with romantic partners, in kink relationships. So uh, chew on that. I would love to hear what y'all have to say about grooming. If this hit a part of your brain that lit up and made you have some realizations that made you see things in a different light, maybe that made you go, bitch, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Whatever. Like, talk to me. Uh, come visit me on social media. You, you know where to find me. Until next time. Thanks, all American fuckers. Have a good one. Don't be groomy. No, that's a weird way to end it. But yeah, don't be groomy. Okay, bye. Thank you for listening. Find us online at opendeeplypodcast.com and on social media at Kate Marie or at Sunny Megatron. Check back bi-weekly for new episodes. And until next time, remember, your authentic truth is only found when you dare to open deeply. Intro and outro voice by the queen goddess, Frenchie Davis. Intro and outro music, by the Baltimore Bull, Rob Burrell.